settlement or trial? Which one should you be focusing on and why? Learn all about it in episode 119 of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast, starting now. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now your host, Jason Lavoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 119 of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. I am Jason Lavoy, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, and today we are talking with Joseph Wilmore, a divorce attorney um, out in San Diego, California. Now, Joseph completed his undergraduate degree in Arizona State. He attended law school at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. And because of his outstanding academic performance, he was invited onto the Thomas Jefferson Law Review, where he served as an editor for the remainder of his law school experience. He is very personable and caring, and his diverse background of life experiences and public service make him a very enjoyable attorney to work with. And he covers it all when it comes to family law. So let's talk about it. Why you should want to settle your divorce. Let me introduce to you Joseph Wilmore. Joseph! Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you today. Yes. Good afternoon, Jason. How are you? I'm great. So we got a great topic to talk about, but before we get to it, let's let everybody know a little bit about you if they're not familiar with who you are. So, you know, kind of basically a little bit of background and how you got to this point in your life. All right. So my name is Joseph Wilmore. I am a divorce and family law attorney uh, based in San Diego, California. Uh, I'm a board certified family law specialist with the State Bar of California. Uh, I have been in practice now for a little over 10 years, and nine of those years have been uh, as a solo practitioner and exclusively in the area of family law. Uh, I think like most people that end up in my field, none of us necessarily dreamed in law school of becoming a divorce and family law attorney. I know my initial objective was to get into criminal law, yet I somehow fell into family law uh, <laughs> when I went solo. Kind of figured out that I liked it, um, but I was good at it. Uh, I, you know, my objective again was to be in court all the time. And there's only a few areas of practice where that's, that really is a thing. And that was family law. I, again, my business kind of developed solely on that basis as I took on more family law cases, uh, eventually becoming a certified specialist uh, and developing a what I would hope is a pretty uh, pretty good reputation in the area as a uh, you know a family law attorney, a trial attorney, uh, and a skilled uh, attorney that also settles cases quite frequently too. And yeah, that's awesome. And that's what we're going to talk about today, settling cases and why that's in your best interest, everybody's best interest. Um, but real one, one little caveat on what you said, you know, kind of rang a bell with me because when I went to law school, I actually did it with the intent to become a family attorney. Um, and, you know, people said, oh, you're crazy. You know, what's wrong with you? And I said, what are you talking about? And because I, I didn't want to do big law either. I, I wanted to do something where I could actually see the effects of our work on, you know, people's lives immediately and, and right away. That's what interested me about it. And, but it's hard, right? So a lot of people who end up in this field do, like you said, fall into it. Um, and then, you know, 
maybe they regret it, maybe they don't. But um, it's just one of those interesting things about family laws that, you know, you, you rarely hear people say, I wanted to do that. Completely agree. And when a lot of us fall into it, I think a lot of people, at least attorneys, uh, look at it as an evergreen area of law. It's, it's not so much affected by the economy because people will always get in relationships. They will always have relationship issues and, and divorce. And of course, the, all the other ancillary family law issues, custody, support, uh, adoptions all have that trickle down effect as well. Yep. So, so I think a lot of attorneys might, you know, get into family law at some point. Those that actually flourish in it are good at it and stay in it. That is certainly a, a much smaller segment. And, and, you know, I know you're in California, I'm in New Jersey, but I'm willing to bet that this rings true pretty much <clears throat> in every jurisdiction. The family law community, the legal community is pretty, pretty tight knit. You know, most, most of the major players know each other and um, it's a small, small group that, you know, you want to be able to work well in relationships matter. Absolutely. I think public perception of family law attorneys is that you all hate each other. Uh, you, you must fight with each other. And that's how results happen. Some of them. And you, and you, <laughs> I'm not saying that's never the case, of course. Um, but it really helps when you have two seasoned family law professionals, uh, you know, that are well established in their community that know each other well, and that really work toward making making progress in the in, in the case, uh, outside of the courtroom. Uh, because that's really, you know, what the clients, what, what is number one in the client's best interests and what will really get the clients uh, as close to what they want as possible. Because as you know, as well, going into court is always a gamble. And sometimes that judge is going to make a ruling that neither, neither party end up liking. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect transition into what we're talking about today. So let's get right into that. Because, you know, speaking of judges, I always tell people, you know, judges can be intimidating, right? Um, they wear that black robe. Perhaps they sit a little bit higher than everybody else, depending on the courtroom. Um, and, but people are intimidated. But a judge is a person, a human being, just like you and me. Um, and they have their own biases, even though they're not supposed to let them affect them. Human nature, it's almost impossible to, you know, let that happen. And, you know, so a judge, you don't want a judge, right? I always say you don't want a judge making decisions about your life, about your children, um, and, and how are you going to live that life if you can help it. Um, at the end of the day, judges are there as the last line of you know defense, I guess, to make a decision because you got to get divorced and you got to move on with your lives. Um, but if you can help it, you don't want that to happen, right? There's other ways, better ways to, to do this. Absolutely. And one thing, you know, at least here locally, and I practice throughout all of Southern California, 
And in certain areas, I noticed this much more than others. And in particular, I'm thinking of Orange County, so about an hour north of San Diego here, is that a lot of judges have kind of come down to where they don't want to make decisions as well. Right. Where they will say, why haven't you guys worked this out? And I've had several cases where judges will say, well, I'm going to continue this on my own motion so you guys meet and confer. Essentially, judges just saying i don't want to make a decision on this go figure it out and you know and that ends up of course causing more delays but ultimately it allows us to try to figure out well what, what do they want what will make them happy and you know what can make this right for this situation right and i and i think you know i mean this is just my opinion on that i think judges who are are decent people right decent decent human beings in general um, it's a, it's a hard position that they're in, you know, being a family law judge, um, you know, deciding a, a custody issue, a parenting time issue that, you know, has real life implications, right? Um, Absolutely. not just, we're not just talking about money and, you know, damages. We're talking about people's lives and the way they live those lives. So they have to go home and sleep at night too. And it's hard. They don't want, because oftentimes it's not black and white. Um, and you know, what is the right decision? Um, that's what they're tasked with doing, but they have to make a decision. And so I could understand why that they would want to kind of punt most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so if you're not going to have the judge decide your issue, then the only other way to do it uh, is, well, you can either go to mediation, right? Which oftentimes people do in a divorce at some uh, phase and have a, a mediator try to help you bridge that gap or the attorney's um, hopefully can work between each other um, to try to come and negotiate an amicable, amicable resolution. So what, whatever way that happens, right? If you figure out and resolve your issues outside of court, then you're talking about settlement. That's what we call a settlement, right? Correct. So what, why, we touched on it a little bit, but why is it preferable? And what does it mean to settle your dispute. I think a lot of people have different misconceptions about what that means. It means, you know, did I win? Did they win? When you settle, what does that mean from uh, your point of view as an attorney? Well, certain issues, um, especially in a community property state like California, are very straightforward. And it, it almost makes, not almost, it generally makes zero sense to litigate some issues. So for example, if we look at a employer-sponsored retirement plan, it's very easy to calculate what the other spouse's interest in that plan would be. So if, say, there was $200,000 in husband's uh, employer-sponsored 401k, and during the marriage, another $200,000 was contributed to it. Um, so, you know, not even looking at interest or anything. We'll say date of separation, there's $400,000 in that account. Well, 200,000 of that is very clearly his separate property since that was acquired before marriage. 200,000 acquired during marriage. So again, wife's community interest is very easy to determine, $100,000. Arguing that fact is something, there's no point because you can figure it out outside of court. Why would you, a judge quite in that situation will make a decision because it's very easy. <laughs> That's an issue that should not be litigated. Now, just for people who aren't familiar with, you know, you say the word community property, every state has their own 
law and legal standard as far as, you know, what gets divided and how so in a divorce. So in a community property state like California, what does that mean? So community property is um, assets uh, and income acquired during the marriage. Uh, so if, you know, say husband is earning income during marriage, uh, he puts that income into a bank account solely in his name. Title is not conclusive of anything here. Uh, that's something that a lot of people don't understand either. So wife has a one half interest in everything in that bank account. Right. So long as it was acquired during marriage. A marital asset, we call that, right? Correct. It would be a marital asset. So now there's okay. exclusions, of course, to community property as well. So say in the same situation, husband received a $1 million inheritance that is a separate property. So inheritance is specifically excluded from community property. Same with gifts that are uh, made solely and clearly to one of the spouses that is also excluded from community property. Okay. Now, not to get into the weeds uh, and, and off our intended topic here, but if excluded, otherwise excluded property, like an inheritance is commingled in the joint fund, does that, is it still excluded or is it now fair game for the community? burden of proof is on the spouse who claims it's separate property. So if that spouse commingled it, he or she would have to argue that it had no intention of being considered community. There are arguing points. So say, for example, a spouse used that money toward uh, backyard improvements on their jointly owned home. Uh, he's probably going to lose, he or she will probably lose that argument because it se seems like they made a gift to the community by doing that. Right. So, so you really want to make sure, just so that argument doesn't exist, that it is earmarked in a separate account, that all the tracing rules can be, be shown that that was received as separate and kept as separate. It's a little side tip for everybody listening, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but let's get, let's get back on track because we can go down that rabbit hole really easily. You know, settling um, is negotiation, right? When you settle your divorce, that means you're resolving the dispute and all the disputes that are part of the divorce um, amongst yourselves without the assistance of the court. Right. And so what does it mean why should people want to settle? Because you hear a lot of times, especially in a hotly contested divorce, uh, emotions are running high. You might hear somebody say, it could be your client, it could be the other side, you know, say, no, I want to try this divorce. I want a trial. I want my day in court. How do you respond to that? Why don't you want your day in court? Well, every person out there has a negative aspect to their case. Uh, no, and, and that's one of the hardest discussions to have with a very emotional client, because when you address the negative parts of their case, so say uh, one spouse, <clears throat> you know, did behave very badly on a number of ways, maybe breached their financial obligations to the other spouse by spending money improperly, that other spouse might be claiming some type of breach and reimbursements. Uh, and that other spouse might have the tracing to prove it. 
And oftentimes when you identify a weak portion of a very emotional person's case, they sometimes they'll lash out on the attorney and say, well, you don't believe in me. You don't want to fight for me. And that's hardly the case. Right. Uh, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't evaluate the case impartially and look at it from how would a judge that does not know or care about either of you rule based on the facts it has before it. So then when we look at that, we'll say, well, okay, you, you, you messed up a little bit here. So your spouse might be entitled to a little bit more of the assets there, but how do we offset this? So then we kind of look at it as negotiating things, which a, a judge would just look at it issue by issue and make orders accordingly. But you can also look at um, a particular asset that one person wants more than the other. So say uh, the wife absolutely loves the home and wants to keep it. Husband does not care about that house. Uh, they're fighting over the, the value of the house, for example. And we've had appraisals and each of them wants to bring in experts to, to testify as to what the house's true market value is. We know what the judge is going to do. When people dispute an item such as a house, uh, a judge is just going to order it listed for sale and sold. So wife loses on that you know, if that's right. very important for her to keep, she absolutely will want to negotiate terms for that. Because again, the judge isn't going to look at the sentimental value that wife and the, the emotional attachment that wife has to the house. The judge is going to say, all right, well, I'm going to evaluate these two experts, you know, and, and then kind of make, make a judgment call. And quite frankly, if one expert says the house is worth 2 million, the other expert says 1.9 million, most judges are probably going to say, I'm going to split the difference. <laughs> and the question is how, you know, how much can you in good faith, right? Hopefully, you know, you, you, both sides have an attorney who, would act like this, but right it, when you're so close, and no matter whatever whatever the dispute is, but let's take the house as an example. You're, you know, hundred thousand dollar difference in valuation. You know, how much are you going to pay your attorneys that you're at your hourly rate to fight over that? Right, it's just not worth it. And that's another thing that we have to discuss is is concessions and compromise, and the value that they get in fighting over it, as far as just trying to prove the other one right or wrong versus what is the cost and emotional hardship you'll really go through too because litigating a divorce is very emotionally draining uh certainly something that most people don't want to drag out over the course of several years so ultimately, when they're able to resolve that sooner than later, when they're able to reach the settlement without having to go to court hearing after court hearing uh, and you know, testify before the court and spend uh, hours with their attorney preparing for it, they're able to move on with their life. Right. I, I always say, and tell me if you agree with this, I think you will, but don't be shy if you don't. I, I always say... <laughs> your emotional mental health uh, has value to it, right? Mm -hmm. And just like you'd fight over money and you know what the value of a house may be, alimony, that, that's tangible values. But your emotional well, mental health has a value to it. You as the client have to decide what that value is. You know, I can't tell you what it is, but there is a value to it that you should assign because that will help you determine 
when you're looking at a settlement proposal, you know, what's another six months worth of fighting and litigating worth mentally, emotionally um, to you? And, and that should be figuring in into the equation in some degree. Absolutely. And that, that makes me think of something too on that is that when you do have uh, clients that come and they want to use the legal system to punish their spouse. And, you know, I've seen it, of course, countless times sure. where I have a client that wants that to happen. I'll say, so, so you really want to make your spouse miserable. Oh yeah, I do. And you, you really want to punish them, right? Yeah, I do. Like, well, you can use the legal system to do that. However, keep in mind that is not going to put you in the best position in the end. It is going to cost you a lot of money and also emotional strain and hardship on yourself. So while yes, you can succeed in making them miserable through the legal system, you will also hurt yourself and make yourself miserable as well, as well as put yourself in a much worse financial situation by doing that. Yeah. And, and sometimes they have to work through that, you know, and it takes a few times of hitting them over the head with that kind of a statement uh, before they get it, before they understand it. Right. Um, and for me, when I was practicing, uh, and I still don't think they do it enough judges, uh, and I'm not sure how they, you tell me how it works in California, but in New Jersey, if somebody files a motion, if the judge, uh, found that the motion was frivolous, uh, or without merit, they could award attorney's fees at the end of that motion. Um, so if, you know, let's say you're representing the wife, husband files a motion that's deemed frivolous. Um, the, at the end, the judge, assuming the wife wins the motion, can order the husband to pay the wife's attorney's fees to cover the cost of defending that motion. And that is a tool that can quickly nip somebody who wants to use the legal system as a sword rather than a shield kind of a thing to nip that behavior in the bud. But they don't do it often enough, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, that behavior can fester and, and the case can kind of get out of control. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I will agree completely uh, with that is that here in California, with regard to the issue of attorney fees, we really have two, two statutes that govern that, uh, and it's Family Code 2030 and 271. And 2030 is an order for attorney's fees based on disparity of income. So, of course, you know, the more uh, financially, the more money party, Uh, almost certainly will be ordered to make a contribution toward the less moneyed spouse on the basis of equal ability to obtain legal representation. And then we have family code section 271, which is sanctions, and that's based on bad faith conduct, um, uh, frustrating settlement in a case, needlessly driving up the cost of litigation. And I, I, I see it so seldomly enforced, uh, despite how uh, oftentimes I see what, what I would consider blatantly clear, bad faith motions, bad faith conduct, failure to respond to discovery, lying. Judges simply just say, eh, this doesn't meet the threshold. I wonder and why that they, is, right? Why are judges argue, so reluctant? And here in California, I would say it's even worse because even if you find that a party has engaged in bad faith conduct, the judge can also say, well, 
I don't think they have enough money to also pay the other side's attorney fees. So not going to order it. Yeah, it, it's really right. But in doing that, they're empowering the bad behavior. Right? They do because, because they just learned that they can keep doing it over and over. With no consequences, right? With and that's no consequences. Right, that's the problem. So at, at the end, I want to I keep us on track here cir- and circle back to why settling uh, is in both parties' favors. Because what would, you be, what would be your definition, Joseph, of a, a good settlement? Like, how do you know when you are um, evaluating a proposal, it doesn't matter what side you're on, if this is something that you should really do? Like, how do you, what is the gauge of a good settlement? So I, I think a good one there to start with is child custody. And I can only imagine this is very uniform throughout the country is that uh, a child custody and visitation schedule is going to be focused on what is in the best interest of that child, meaning the court's objective, of course, is to have as equal as possible time between the parents within the schedules and availability of the parents. So if a parent is, you know, traveling 20 days out of the month and unavailable to care for the children during that time, the court is not going to order an equal parenting time because it's not in the child's best interest to be in a babysitter or alternative caregivers uh, custody. So we do have to look at that. So if you're representing a party uh, in that situation that is gone and unavailable all the time, yet they will not back down from demanding equal time, uh, that, that's a harsh conversation to have with your client, but it's a necessary uh, conversation too, because it is almost, almost guaranteed that that individual will not receive an equal timeshare if they litigate that issue. So ultimately, in that case, no matter how much they don't want the other parent to have that time, they have to focus on what is best for the child uh, in that situation rather than, you know, their own selfish interests of saying, well, I want, you know, that time, even though I won't be able to care for my child and I'll have to find some other person to do that. Right. And I've heard this said many, many times before. I agree with it, but let me, I want to know what your thoughts are. You know, a good settlement is where both sides are a little bit unhappy. Correct. And what's funny too, after that, and it can be on any number of issues, whether it's child related or money related, after they sit on it and think about it for a little while, they're really happy uh, after it. And then they come back and they say, oh, Joseph, you were right. This is, this is great. This is, thank you for doing what you did. Right. I, I see clearly now. And again, so let's look at spousal support as as a means of settlement. And again, very, very predictable here in California. Uh, Now, I should say the court is not obligated to order any specific amount, 
but the family code here makes it very clear as far as what factors the court will consider, what it, what it is likely to be length paid, uh, what obligations the supported spouse will have as far as their duty to become self-sufficient. You can always predict a range that spousal supports will likely be ordered by the court. So if you fall somewhere within that range, you're probably in a good place. Uh, obviously, if you're the one paying, you want to be toward the lower end of that range, but there's also other ways to perhaps incentivize the other person to, to settle. Uh, so say you're the party that's paying spousal support and you really don't want to do it, uh, but you know your, your other, the, the other spouse you know, wants a large sum, sum of money to say, go, buy, go put a down payment on a house. Chances are you can buy them out for a fraction of what your total spousal support would have been over the course of, say, 10 years by giving them a quarter of that in a lump sum. Right. Then they get, they get the cash that makes them happy. They can go do whatever they want. Then the, the, the supporting spouse, the one who would have been paying spousal support, is also off the hook for spousal support. They just paid them off a fraction of what they would have paid over the course of, say, 10 years, for example, and kind of a win-win in that situation. Absolutely. And, and the moral of that story, I think, is there's different ways to skin a cat. Um, and, and so you want to be, be able to think creatively and, and outside the box on, on issues such as spousal support. Um, and, to, and to that degree, you know, you're good family law attorney will be that creative thinker, will, will figure out what is most important to their clients, how to get that client that, of course, within the scope of, of what the laws are, learning what the other side wants, uh, having meaningful dialogue between the attorneys as far as trying to to get each of their clients to that position where, okay, I compromised on a few issues, but in the grand scheme of this, I walk away satisfied knowing that I got a good deal. Uh, you know, the, the other side's relatively happy as well, hopefully. Say they have kids together, they're gonna still have to work together afterwards. They're still gonna have to deal with each other. So there's a good chance that person is gone forever. But, you know, if you walk away from it on, on the foot of settlements rather than litigation, everything will be better after that too. That, re that really is. And, and nobody wants to, we're, we're out of our time, but I, I will end with this. Nobody wants to go through a divorce trial um, because of the expense and the time. Um, so, right. I mean, would you, what do you have to say about that? I would agree. I would say settlement is always in your best interest. I would say the only reason you should go to trial is if your spouse is at such a position of unreasonableness and is unwilling to, like I said, do anything reasonable to resolve the matter. That is really your only reason to go to trial. But right. aside from that, if you have two parties uh, working together toward a resolution, you're on the you're on the right track and stick to that. Because and, and that's like why said, having yeah, that's why having the right attorney on your side and involved for both parties is so important because both attorneys, if they know what they're doing and they're approaching it in good faith, 
understand that concept and will work with their clients to, to bridge the gaps in a reasonable way, right? Absolutely. Joseph, it was so great having you on. I love talking with other attorneys uh, all over the country to get their take on these issues. So thank you so much. Tell everybody where they can find you. Jason, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, my website is wilmorelawfirm.com. That is with two L's. Uh, I can also be found on Instagram. It is my first name, Joseph, dot last name, Wilmore. And I would love to connect with everybody. There you go. Thank you so much. And all that information and the links will be in the show notes too. So don't worry if you can't write it down this second. Joseph, thanks so much. And hopefully we'll talk again in the future on another topic. Jason, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. There you go. I love talking to other fellow attorneys. Um, you hear it straight from the horse's mouth and their perspective. Um, and so if you live in the San Diego area, uh, feel free to reach out to Joseph and he will uh, take good care of you, I have no doubt. So, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. You'll get all new episodes when they are released. And if you have a couple of minutes, just please, on Apple uh, Podcasts, leave a kind review, and it helps spread the word about this podcast uh, so other people can help uh, learn and benefit from it, too. In the meantime, all I'm going to ask you to do is be strong, Act confident, stay positive. I'm Jason Lavoy, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you real soon. Mm-hmm.